Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You actually prepared for this career. I wanted to learn how to write stories and go out in the field. So I would wait after hours and I would pull scripts out of the garbage. I approved every shot of that show. Every shot. Just like you do now. Yeah, (laughs) I still do it. Starting at 4.15 in the morning. Yes, I still do. If you knew 19 years ago what you know now, would you have taken this job? Okay, well, you're on Fill in the Blanks, and this is a very special week for me because I'm getting to interview a very special person. Now, people always wonder, really, what goes on behind the scenes? What makes the Dr. Phil show the Dr. Phil show? What makes it tick? What goes into putting the show together? And I've always said, only half-jokingly, that I have this knack for getting these gigs where somebody does all the work and I get all the credit, and... I'm really not joking when I say that, and my guest today is going to be proof of that because for the first time ever on Fill in the Blanks, I'm talking to Carla Pennington. Now, if you don't know, let me tell you who Carla Pennington is. Carla is the executive producer of Dr. Phil. That means she is the boss of the show. Everybody works for her, including me, all the staff, (laughs) everybody, like two, three hundred people. She's also the executive producer of The Doctors. She's done other shows. She's executive producer of Daily Mail TV. She's involved in all of the shows that I do. She's involved in Bull. She's involved in shows that we have right now, one going on CBS All Access. Has to do with animal rescue that we're working on. She's working on a show that we're doing for the network right now. Just all kinds of things. She has as many balls in the air as I do. And she is a single mother of twins. We'll talk about that in a minute. But she is the executive producer of all of these shows. And we're going to talk about her background, who she is, and what's going on. So that's Carla Pennington. So thanks for sitting down and doing this. Well, of course. I was shocked that you wanted to talk to me since you talk to me every day. Well, I know I talk to you every day, but nobody else does. And I get all these questions about, you know, how does the show come together and what goes on to make it happen and all. And so I wanted to really answer that in a substantive way because most new shows start with one executive producer that doesn't survive the first year. I think I've seen a statistic like it's 87% of the time if a show survives, which it usually doesn't. Right. But if it does, the executive producer doesn't survive because they either say, I've had all this I want and go away or changes are made. And so they bring in a second flight of people and the executive producer just doesn't survive. But I've had one executive producer, and that's you. We're in our 18th season. You've been here for 19 years because you were the first person brought on board. 
And you built the entire staff for the Dr. Phil show, right? That's true. So it was 2001. Do you think I should tell the story about how I was hired? Yes, I think you should. It was painful, ladies and gentlemen. It was <laughs> Why? incredibly painful. Well, it was, a, it was a long process. So I was working at Entertainment Tonight at the time, and one of the executives came to me and said, would you be interested in working uh, on a Dr. Phil show? We, we were able to get Dr. Phil because apparently people were after you. They were. Yes. And... Um, I said, who? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Very funny. Yes. And, uh, you know, I hadn't uh, interviewed for a job in many, many years. I didn't even have a fresh resume. And so I quickly did that. And I flew to Chicago. Right. And walked into a very intimidating room. It was Oprah, uh, Oprah's EP, and about three Paramount executives, you, which can be intimidating in and of itself, and did a terrible, I was terrible. I gave the, probably the worst interview of my career. Really? Why do you say that? Oh, I was rambling and babbling. I don't even remember what I was said. Well, you've always done that. <laughs> but I remember there was a woman coming down the stairs as I was coming up the stairs, and she was the one after my job. And of course, Terry Wood made the mistake of saying, oh, she just gave a really good interview, which was, really, you well, want to tell me, you want to tell me that? Thanks. <laughs> So that was that interview. And then then I think I made the first, obviously I made the first cut. And then I was flown to, to Dallas. Right. And I met Robin. And I got a tour of CSI, which is now based on your show, Bull. Right. I walked around there. And then uh, I think, so that was down to the second round. And then I didn't hear anything for ages. Really? How long was it? Oh, my God, months. Really? Yeah. I kind of forgot about it. I went about my business, and I was, you know, raising my kids, and they were like 18 months at the time or something like that. And then I got a call. I was uh, at the park. It was like 6 p.m. because I got up early for entertainment tonight, so I was already done for the day. And, and uh, Terry Wood called and said, Phil wants to talk to you again. And I said, well, what else does that man need to know about me? <laughs> I mean, my God. <laughs> I said, really? And she said, yes, come on down. He wants to do a, a video conference with you. And he has some more questions. And I said, oh, all right. So then remember, I came into the conference room at Paramount. And that's when you told me that I had the job. But I thought, oh, my God, he wants to interview me again. But it was a six-month process. It had been a good process. And when you came to Dallas and we met there, that was a time that we really talked about some substantive things, and you toured CSI Courtroom Sciences, which yes. was important for me because I wanted you to have some insight into my world, the world that I came from, the litigation arena, which was one of precision, investigation, research. I think you would agree here 18 years later, it really defines how I approach things. Absolutely. And what was your reaction to going through CSI It at the really time? showed me how meticulous you were about everything. To see that you took people through the process of a trial and would do it over and over and over again until you completely understood how somebody would react to an argument and to, you know, the basics of a trial. I thought it was fascinating. And we had a pretty impressive control room for a non-TV yes, place, Yes, you right? did. And the graphics and yeah. everything. So I knew that you were going to be somebody who didn't just 
as they say, phone it in. And I think that that, you know, you say that, you know, I'm uh, an executive producer who's lasted so long. I think it's a testament more to you or to you and I together as a team. Um, That's why we've lasted so long, because I've always said this about you. You are seriously the hardest working person I've ever had the pleasure of putting a show together with, because if it weren't for how much you care and how much I care about the quality of the show, I don't think we would have been here this long. No, no doubt. We're matched on that for sure. And I've told you this before, but we got it down to three candidates for the show at that point. And Oprah said, listen, it's up to you because this is somebody you're going to live with every day and you're going to be shoulder to shoulder. And she said, it's up to you. Only thing I'll say is I would not pick Carla Pennington. (laughs) Pick who you want, but do not pick her. And I'll tell you why. Because she's got infant twins. And she is already worn out. Anybody that has infant twins, they've got to be exhausted. And you can just tell that she's going to be just worn out. You absolutely do not want her. Pick any of the other two, not her. It's up to you. So I said, okay, gotcha. I'm picking Carla Pennington. And she (laughs) said, fine. I said, it's up to you. And she was here the first day that we shot our first, what was supposed to be a test show. We used them all, of course. Right. And we did two shows that day. And she came out of that control room. She came and found me. And she said, oh, my God, was I wrong. That is the most energetic, focused, buttoned up, in control person I have ever seen in my life. That is absolutely (laughs) the person you should have chosen. You are completely right. I was 100% wrong. That's your EP. That's who you should have chosen. And she still tells me every time, you know, I see her, she'll always say, I was wrong. It wasn't even the end of the day. She came and said, oh, my God, I have never seen such energy and focus and control in a control room. Well, you know, I said, even when I was at Entertainment Tonight, that the the best people that we hired were single mothers. Yeah. Because they know how to focus, get it done, and make quick decisions. Because that's what they're supposed to do. It's that old saying, if if you want something done, give it to a busy person to do. Exactly. And your kids, Elizabeth and Jackson, were 18 months old, and now they're in their second year of college. Yes. Is that hard to believe? It's shocking. I mean, they were running around while we were building the offices. Yeah. Little toddlers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, little toddlers. And they were over here, and we were actually putting the platform down to the stage. But we'll talk more about the show in a minute. But for all of the women that are listening What's been your philosophy and what's been your secret across time? Because seriously, people may not know. In fact, my own mother asked me one time, you know, she lived in Dallas and she passed away when she was elderly. She was 80 and plus. And she asked me one day, she said, Philip, what do you do the other 23 hours of the day? (laughs) I mean, she honestly had the idea that I pulled up to the studio like one minute before airtime, did the show for 60 minutes, and then went back home. What do you do the other 23 hours a day? And I think sometimes people don't realize that it takes 300 people to put this show on, all supervised and managed by you. And so you're up at 30, 4.30, 4.30 in the mm-hmm. morning, yes. screening tapes so yes. you can give notes to the night crew mm-hmm. to polish those tapes for the show. 
the bio packages, the pieces that were shot into people's homes, things like that. So you're up at 415. Then over the years, you've got to have the kids ready for school and all that stuff. Then you're here. You do all of this. Then you screen tapes for the next day. Then you're back home. You're at their games. For all the women mothers at home, what's been your strategy and philosophy to pull all that off? Oh, um, coffee, a quad shot grande. (laughs) Um, No, I just, um, I really think it boils down to a lot of instinct, a lot of focus, and a lot of attention to detail, and really not not getting uh, distracted, not getting distracted, just having a strict schedule. And when you're doing something, you are 100% focused on what you're doing. Right. Um, and that's being with the children as well. So I, I did get up at 4.15. I like to have that quiet time. Mm-hmm. I would get everything done. I would give clean, clear notes, send those off, then focus on the kids, get them ready for school, get to work, focus on that. But, you know, when something had to do with the children, I was 100% focused on on them. And your kids have said that over the years, by the way, because you know I know both your children yes, very well. Yes, And yes. they have made it very clear they have never felt deprived of their mother. They have always no. said, when she's here, she's 100% present. And at the beginning of this year, I talked about how to increase your efficiency and your productivity during 2020. And one of the things I said is multitasking is a myth. You've got to do one thing efficiently, clear, get it done, then move on to the next thing. You can't do five different things at once. It just slows you down. You don't do anything well. You do everything poorly. You're not efficient. And you don't do that. You get up, you focus on this, that's done, you move on to the next thing, that's done, you move on to the next thing. You don't try to do five things at once. Correct. It's, you're right. Uh, multitasking is a myth completely. Yeah. You yeah. can't because you're going to make mistakes yeah. if you do. Right. Things are going to fall through the cracks. Right. And, I, and also sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have got to have a sense of humor. Yeah. That's yeah. key for me. I have got to have fun with what I do, and I've got to keep it light with my staff. Well, and people around here across 18 years will say one thing that's the signature of the May West building is many times during the day, you will hear Carla laughing the top of her lungs throughout the building several times during the day. I mean, you do. Yes. You find humor in some really weird things. I really do. But you have to. Particularly with what we do. Mm -hmm. It's kind of gallows humor sometimes to release the pressure, but you really do. Yes. Yes, absolutely. What some people don't know. I'm sure most people that don't know you don't know that early on, your son was diagnosed with diabetes. Oh, yes. Early on. Mm -hmm. So not only did you have twins that were young that you had to deal with, then one of them came down with a disease that was very demanding, and you got that call one day while you were here, right? Yes, it was season season one. It was... uh, January and I was I was at work and um, I had thought you know he was just dehydrated because it doesn't run in my family so I had said to the nanny the night before I said you know let's let's take him to the pediatrician he seems he just seems lethargic and dehydrated and so I was at the office already it was we were about to start taping the first show and I got a call from the pediatrician he said you've got to meet them at Children's Hospital your son has 
diabetes. I was like, well, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. His blood sugar was through the roof, and I was panicking. And um, I came into your office, and I said, I, I don't know what's going on. You're telling me to meet in the Children's Hospital, and, and I was, you know, very upset. And you stopped me, almost like that scene from Moonstruck, this share when he slaps <laughs> yeah. Nicholas Cage, and you're like, yeah, I need you to step out of it because when you get to that hospital, you need to be completely calm because he's going to take his cues from you. And if you show him that nothing's wrong, he's, that's how he's going to uh, look at his disease for the rest of his life. If, if, if mom's okay, he's okay. And that was the best advice. I mean, thank God for you. And you also gave advice uh, about Liz, and I thought that was genius because you said, don't let her stand on the sidelines. She's got to be as important. Don't spend all of your attention on him. Do special things with her too. And that was that was key advice as well. You know, when you get a disease like that with a child, you never get a second chance at a first impression. And he knows it. He's been told, you come in, and if your hair's on fire for the rest of his life, he will remember that moment. And if you come in, you say, hey, we worked the problem, man. It's okay. Yep. And I know him well today, as you know. I played tennis with him just recently. And his whole life, you've managed it the same way. Mm -hmm. and he's on the tennis team at his college. He's got a 130-mile-an-hour serve. He just takes it in stride. It's not even an issue with him. No, it's not an issue. It's never been an issue with We him. just did a follow-up on the doctors because he came, He was on when he was eight years old because yeah. I needed Travis to convince him to get a pump, you know? So he was on the show, and then I had him come on and do a little follow-up, and um, he was great. Yeah. He was great. He's yeah. doing really well. And he tells me people ask him about his eyes. No, he wears a little thing. Mm -hmm. That's nothing. It's just uh, he's, he doesn't even make no, no drama. No, no drama. Doesn't want any attention drawn to it. No, exactly, exactly. It's been great watching those kids grow up. Yeah. So people know you actually prepared for this career because you went to San Francisco State University and got your degree in broadcasting communication arts, right? Yes. You've gone back and spoken at the university. You're very distinguished alumnus. Yes, apparently alumnus I'm in the, I'm in the Hall of Fame. Yes. But next to Ned Benning. Yes. Picture. Yes. You graduated magna cum laude there, and yes. they really we have are students. Proud of you. We have students that come through here. Yeah. Uh, every year we do a little talk with them, and we have interns that that work here, right. on the, and they're they're great, very hardworking kids. So, what did you plan to do when you went to school? When I was in high school, I saw a show after school and it was called um, Evening Magazine. And it was these, they would go out in the field and they would interview local entrepreneurs and people doing wacky, weird jobs. And I thought, oh, that sounds, that's a fun job. I want to go, I want to do that. And that's what I did. I literally figured out a way to find some kind of, <laughs> some kind of a way to, to work at Evening Magazine. And so I couldn't go to UC Berkeley because that was journalism which is boring to me. Right. Yeah. So I found out that San Francisco State had a broadcasting department. So that was that was my goal. And I went to school there, and I, I sure enough, I got a job, not even at Evening Magazine. I got a job at the national office, of which was PM Magazine. Right. Although I did have to do some internships first. So you do, I did internships when I was at school. And uh, yeah. How long were you out before you went to hard copy? Oh, I worked at PM Magazine for... Uh, a couple of years and before then before you went to hard before copy. I went to hard copy I convinced them actually when I was there 
You want to hear how I learned how to write scripts? Yes. Okay. So I was an associate producer, which was like a booker. So I'd get on the phone and I would book stories and I would, I, I would send Matt Lauer out on stories. Okay. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. Okay. Then I wanted to learn how to do, how to write stories and go out in the field. So I would wait after hours and I would pull scripts out of the garbage <laughs> and when I figure out how they wrote them. And then I would hang around in the edit bays with the editors and I would ask them if I could just sit in and watch them cut a package from the scripts. And then I would make friends with some of the field producers and then they would teach me how to do it. But, you know, it was all working for free after hours and figuring out how to do it. And I would book stuff. I would book stories and then I would, I would convince them that I should go out on, in the field with the field producers as the booker. And then I'd, I convinced the boss that I should go down, move down to LA and run the LA bureau because they didn't have a bureau chief. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? So I moved down to LA and I ran the LA Bureau of PM Magazine. And from there, I met uh, Linda Bell Blue, who started working at PM Magazine in San Francisco. And at that point, I was going out in the field and I was writing packages about celebrities and I was faxing them the scripts. And she would call me up and she had just, uh, like wacky very boisterous personality and she would just this is a great script blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's all she would say she never gave me notes but she loved me and so she then got a job at a new show on the paramount lot called hard copy and she said i want you to come interview and and so when i went to the paramount lot for the interview they told me it was a 30 minute version of like 60 minutes well we all know what hard copy really was yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was nothing like that yeah but they wanted me to do the celebrity pieces, and they hired me, and that was it. I pulled onto the Paramount lot August of 1989, and I never left. Yeah, you've been here since. Uh-huh, same extension. Same lot. Same telephone extension. Really? <laughs> yes. See, that's fascinating, and I really want people to hear that. You didn't wait around for somebody to train you or give you a promotion or whatever, you stayed after, got scripts out of the trash to figure out, okay, they do a throw here, an uh -huh. intro here. They, they use list this over on the left here. side. Right. They put the, exactly. the package over here. Uh -huh. They do this. And you figured out the format. Yeah. And I sat with the editors and I watched what they did and how they put that soundbite in. Oh, that didn't work because of this. And then they would change it. And yeah, I just, I just stayed so after work. So you did it on your own. You I did it on my yourself. own. Yes by getting these people to show you what to do. Exactly. So then you said, I know how to do this, so uh -huh. now let me let do me it. Let me do it, yeah. Or I would say, let me do it. Can I Can I try it on my own? Uh, you know, the, the hired, the segment producer would do it, and I said, can I do my own version, on, you know, on the side? Yeah. And then they would look at it and give me notes. And so um, I had a mentor there, and he basically taught me how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been on a Paramount lot for 31 years. You started here in 89, 89 to 99, 09, 19. You've been here a long time. Yes, I've been here a long time. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you were with Hard Copy for six years. Then you went to Entertainment Tonight. Six years? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was here during the whole Michael Jackson thing. Yeah. And we were on hiatus, summer hiatus, and I was here when OJ when the OJ thing happened. I remember we came in that day 
because we were doing updates. We would do updates in the show, like segment one. And it was just, I think it was, I was a supervisor. I had been promoted to supervisor at that time. I was very young. And we were looking through the news and, and um, my coworker said, oh, looks like something happened at Nicole Brown Simpson's house. And I go, what do you mean what something happened? And they go, well, she's dead. And I go, and I didn't, I didn't pause. I go, well, OJ did it. And he goes, well, how do you know that? And I go, don't you read the tabloids? Well, he was very hoity-toity. He didn't read the tabloids. And he goes, no. I go, he's always being called to her house for domestic violence. I go, where is he? And that was it. That was yep. the day. So I was there during the big stories. And that's yeah. what put hard copy on the map. Right. Yeah. And when I went to ET, I went there in, it was July 1995. And Linda Bell was hired to boost the ratings because it had become sort of lackluster. Because they weren't really covering at the time, E.T. had become sort of like just a behind the scenes, sort of a publicist dream of like boring movies of the week kind of thing. And so she was hired to come in and shake things up. And she said, I'm not going to do it if I can't bring Carla. And so we came in. I was her number two. And the day we walked in the door, we looked at the rundown. It was the morning that. Hugh Grant had been arrested the night before on Sunset Boulevard right. with Divine Brown. Wasn't on the rundown. Was not on the rundown. They didn't cover celebrity news. So we blew up the show, blew everything up, completely changed the rundown. I completely changed the open. They didn't understand urgency or celebrity news. And so we went in there like hurricanes. They didn't know what hit them. I just talked to an old coworker there. He said, you put that show back together again. And some people just didn't know what to do. A lot of people left because they didn't know how to handle us. You completely redefined the format. We redefined the, the, format. the format. Absolutely. And you were there for six years. Seven. Yeah. Seven years. Mm-hmm. 95 through Then you came along. Yeah. Then yeah. I came along. And- <laughs> but I, I had somebody say to me, we, we have never had a senior producer to sit down in an edit bay. He said, you were, you, the, your attention to detail was uncanny. Like, I approved every shot of that show. Every shot. Yeah. yeah. Just like you do now. Yeah. <laughs> I still yeah, do it. Starting at 4.15 yeah. in the morning. Yes, I still yeah. do. Yeah. What made you decide to make the move when you left ET to come do this? It was a chance to really run my own show. But you have to understand how many shows had launched and failed. Because you had oh, a long-term true. format show yes. that is still on the air today, E.T. So you knew you had longevity there. And here was a show that, I mean, what, the 30 that had been launched previously had failed. Right. And I'd never done a talk show. Right. Which this really isn't, but it's yes. still that. Yes. I turned it into something yeah. else than just a regular yeah. old talk show. Oh, you don't know my secret? You don't know? No. What's the secret? There's a contingency in my contract that said... If it didn't work out, I could get my old job back. So you had an exit quarter. Yes. Well, that's smart. Yeah, because well, you could have not liked me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not much chance of that, <laughs> but that's said, right. Get that bitch out of here. <laughs> so how long was your trap door? A year. Oh, well, that's not much of a trap door. Well, people make decisions within a, a year, though. Yeah, you yeah. could have flamed out Yeah. pretty quick. If it didn't flame out pretty quick, then yeah. 
They would have still taken you back, though. I mean, you did set me up. Do you know what he did? I'm talking of freedom now. <laughs> yeah. This bleepity bleep guy right here, he hired as my number two. Remember the w- woman coming down the stairs during the interview? He hired her as my number two. Now, imagine if you got a job and your number two was the woman who wanted your job. Hello? Well, she was working for you. Well, hello? Knives in my back. We're friendly now, but she wanted my job. Yeah. You know, you're a psychologist. You knew what you were doing. Uh, I I want people to write in and comment about this. (laughs) (laughs) It waited a little bit tougher. Wouldn't you say, Freedom? See? Yeah, see? Motivation. Yeah. Laferne. Is this your victim story? No one's on my side? Is this your this victim, is my story? victim story? Okay. Yes. I just wanted to be sure. Okay. I just well, I just want people to understand. Because you seem really mistreated. <laughs> yeah, you seem really mistreated. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. When did it come clear to you that this was the right move for you? When the show premiered. When I watched it on the air. When I watched people's reactions. When you saw the product and how people responded to it? Yes. Actually, no, even before that. When I was putting together, I sat with the promo department there was a company that we had hired the first season to Mm -hmm. put together our promos and how enthusiastic they were with the product that they were working with and we put together like coming this season kind of a highlight reel and we were getting sort of chills with all everything that we had to work with i knew then you knew then this is going to work yeah 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 and you were right yeah yeah because it's worked from the beginning yeah yeah people ask me when we started, if I thought it was going to work. And I said, well, yeah, I think it's going to work. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think it was going to work. And then the next question I would get is, do you think the absence of Oprah is going to be felt? And I was like, well, let's see. We're going to subtract (laughs) probably the most clarion voice in the history of television. Will that be missed? Yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be missed. Yeah. And the reason they were asking is because they thought she was the buffer, that I was very harsh, very direct, Mm -hmm. didn't mince words with anybody, and that she was the buffer that made that okay. And without her there, was that going to be too much for people to handle? What they didn't realize is that I didn't have to buffer anything when she was there because she was there to do that. 
and that I do have a sense of humor, and right. I can. There were so many sides of you that they hadn't yeah, had the opportunity to, do to see. Exactly. Because she did. Yes. And, you know, I can laugh with people and yes. have a good time. And I think when people saw that, they went, oh, well, okay. Yes. He's not always hammering somebody. Right. And a lot of people said, well, what are you going to do five days a week? You know, you're only Tuesdays with Oprah. And I thought to myself, well, my God, everyone, there's so many problems in this world. Yeah. Five days a week's not even enough. And that's what Oprah said when she said, you need to do your own show. She said, we're doing this a day a week. And five days a week is not going to be enough. You, there's so many issues, so many problems, so many things that people can relate to. You're never going to run out of content. Yeah. And was she ever right? Yes. Have we ever run out no. of content? No. And we adjust to, you know, the problems of the world, every trend. Yeah, we really do. You know, I always hate if somebody asks me, do you have a favorite guest or a favorite show? And the answer is no, I don't have a favorite guest or a favorite show. But is there something that we do or some characteristic of this show that you're most proud of? Because I know you're proud of the show. I know you're proud of what you do. Very proud of the show. I selfishly have gotten so much out of the show. I can see how I relate to my children, how I relate to my friends. I mean, thank you for my divorce. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You know, you say things sometimes during the show and I go, oh my God, that's, that's me. And, you know, you'd think that you would become jaded of hearing everything every day, but you really don't. It, it makes you almost more compassionate because there, but for the grace of God, go I. So do I have a favorite show? No, but do I have uh, compassion for human suffering? Yes. It does make you so very proud when you get these uh, letters and we do these follow-up shows. You've never become jaded. No, I guess I get excited about stories when I hear details. John Perry always says, I can't believe you remember all these stories. I'll say, oh, you mean the one where the the woman had the red shoe and the the, uh, details? To me, it's all about storytelling. When I was at Entertainment Tonight, when I was at Hard Copy, it's all about storytelling. It's never changed. Have you ever missed the celebrity storytelling? No, not really. Because a lot of times you couldn't tell the whole story. You know, you, yeah. there was a lot of publicists involved and, and all of that. And, you know, it's funny, even when I was at, when I was at um, Hard Copy, I will not say who the celebrity was, but I was not exactly the favorite because I went to do the interview and I paid so much attention to detail that I was so annoyed because... The room had to be a certain temperature. She couldn't have just regular juice. It had to be apple juice, but it couldn't be too cold. It had to be literally had to be 65 degrees, the apple juice. It was, I've never in my life. So instead of doing a story on the product that she was hawking, I did half my story about the apple juice (laughs) and this, this diva behavior. They were so mad at me, but I didn't care because it was ridiculous. 65 degree apple juice? Who ever heard of such a thing? So, no, I did not like doing celebrity stories. (laughs) They didn't like me either. When I was around Oprah, Harpo Studios, and they did celebrities, it came very clear to me that I did not want that to be a significant part of Dr. Phil. 
because I watched them come and go and show up an hour late and have all of these demands. And I thought, I will never last with this. This will never work with me. And it's been such a delight to work with real people who really want to be here. Yes. And really want help. And really want help. And we get some divas even among people that say they want help and then get here. And it's funny how fast they cross the city limits of Hollywood (laughs) and all of a sudden they become stars and they lose themselves. And isn't it funny how maybe one out of 50 or one out of 100 it goes to their head the minute they get in the limo. Isn't that amazing? From the airport Isn't by the time amazing? they get to the... Because we treat them so well... Right. ...that they... They start making demands. It goes to their head yes. right away, and they yes. start thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a star. But it becomes part of the story. Yeah. And so we do make it part yes, of the story. Yes, we do. Like you did with the apple juice. Right. I, I had to. But I will tell you that the bigger the star, the nicer the person. Isn't it the truth? Tom the smaller Hanks, the, entourage, the nicest man. The smaller the entourage, Correct. The, the smaller the ego, yes. the bigger the star. Yes. What really gets me is when you have someone that does that, they, they get to town and decide Hollywood goes through their head within an hour, and they decide there's some big get, there's some big story, and they start saying, well, you just wanted me for the ratings. Oh, like, yeah. Are you serious? There is nothing you could say or nothing you could do that would change the rating of this show one ten thousandth of a point for the year. <laughs> they just don't get it. Right, right. I always just shake my head when I hear people say that, oh, this is all about ratings for you. Like, really? They just don't understand. Yeah. You know, it's just us. It's all about money and advertising. Really, all the ads were sold a year ago. <laughs> or, you, you, you're just making a fool out of yourself when you say that. I have to say, 99.9% of our people are very appreciative, mm-hmm. very grateful, very gracious about the help that they get and really grab on to the advice and the help. Yes. Yes. And appreciate it. Yes. I mean, they really do. And that yes. makes it. Okay. You know, people ask me a lot, how do I keep this from weighting me down? They say, you deal with such heavy things all day. And we've seen you do shows with children that are abused or murdered or horrible things that happen sometimes day after day after day. How do you keep that from really dragging you down and getting you depressed and just ruining your life, how do you handle that? Because you do take this on. Mm -hmm. You do care about these people Mm -hmm. as they come through here. How do you manage it? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, Thank you. I should have my own show. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, I know that there's more good in the world than there is evil. And that sometimes we're just unfortunately looking at at the bad parts. But I know that I'm blessed to have so much good in my life. There are days, I will say, that I want to get up from here and go home and hug my children Mm -hmm. and say, thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you 
for not getting into drugs and yes. not becoming criminals and not hating me or your mother. You yes. know, thank you for being such great kids. And yeah, I know Jackson and Liz, your children, and they are just, they're too good to be true. I know. They're I mean, such they're just, good people. I mean, they're amazing citizens. They're yeah. amazing citizens of their school when they were here. They're great at the universities that they are. They're, and they make me laugh. They, I mean, they're, they're just such good people. They're delightful. I yes. mean, they're just, yes. You, they're glad to see you. You're glad to see them. Yeah. Compared to what we deal with here sometimes, right. where right. you have parents that wake up at night and their kids standing at the end of the bed with a butcher knife staring at them. You're like, oh, my God. Right. You, you want to go home and hug your exactly. kids. Say, Thank you. Exactly. There are days that it is such a contrast that I, I do feel that way. But as cliche as it sounds, I really do think. I think of it as spending all day dealing with solutions instead of problems. And that sounds like semantics. Like say, I don't think about it as I deal with problems all day. I deal with solutions all day. But that really is a mindset. You can focus on everything that's wrong, or you can focus on what you introduce that helps make it right. And therefore you have hope and optimism for the future. And that's what I think about that keeps me from getting down. It's like, you remember the heroin twins? Yes. I'm talking about a, a set of twin girls that would have been in high school, but they had dropped out and all. But they were young in their teens, and they were both on heroin and just horrible lives. We, we looked at a day in the life of these, these young women, and it was just so tragic. But we got them out of that. Right. And we, we got them help, and then they came back on a follow-up, and then another follow-up, and they're clean and sober and supporting each other. So I focus on the solution and not the problem, and that keeps me from getting down. And I think that's what you do with everyone. Yeah, Here's the problem, yeah. but now what are we going to do about yeah. it? Yeah. Because I've said, people ask me if I think problems are as simple as I make them out to be, and I've I said just the other day, talking to someone on stage, I don't think problems are simple at all. I think they're very complex. They're often multi-sided, but the solutions are often pretty simple. Yes. You just stop doing that, <laughs> start doing this, yes. change your environment, program yourself differently. They're very manageable. It's just that people sometimes don't find their way to that, and that's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And I, I think that you remember when we started, we said we're going to talk about silent epidemics. We're going to talk about things that matter to people who care and deliver common sense, usable information to people's homes every day for free. In 18 yes. years, I think we're still doing that. Yes. It's yes, just that the are. challenges have changed. Right. Smartphones, cyberbullying, Twitter, mm -hmm. all these things that kids weren't dealing with before. I know. It's completely Social different. Social media has really... Yeah. Turned it around in a not so good way. Yeah. Do you think we've changed the narrative in America? Oh, yes. I thought I was very inspired by what, um, what Tyler Perry said the other day when, when he was uh, honoring you at the Walk of Fame, remembering all of your isms, yeah. you know, because you really have changed the narrative in this country. You've, you've changed the way people handle their problems you really have 
It took a long time for you to get that star, but you sure deserved it. Well, I was glad for that to happen. It's um, it's kind of frivolous on the one hand and cool on the other. I mean, like, what really, yes. what's it matter? But on the other hand, it's nice to have that acknowledgement. Yes, um, of course. And I, I thought, I thought my presenters did a really nice job. Yeah, Ronnie was fun and yes, and all. And I thought Tyler had some really profound things to say as well. But I really do think what we do here and what you edit, crank out, fashion and shape out of what happens in real time is the highest and best use of television. I can't think of a something that happens on television that's a better use than what we do with it. I'm sure there are things as good and some days we're better than others, but I think it's a really one of the highest and best uses of airtime that you could possibly do. I think so. I'm glad you invited me along for the ride. Yeah, and it's yeah. been a good ride, and we've got a lot of ride left to do. Yeah, and you let me uh, tell you what women care about. Yeah, yeah. I was reading an interview you did the other day. I did? Yeah, where you were telling people that I have an analytical mind and look at things from a man's perspective and don't plug in to what the women's perspective would be or what women would think is interesting and that you have to remind me of that occasionally. I would say you have to remind me of that real often. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's exactly right because you're the demo. right. I, that is true. You're the demo. I, I'm not the demo. And I might know what to say about it once once it's identified. Yes. But you're good at identifying what it is that we should talk about. Because I might right. overlook something because it doesn't Interest I, I don't you. spot that right. or it doesn't resonate with me the same way it would a woman or a mother or something. But once you put it on my radar screen then I know how to problem solve it, but it wouldn't necessarily get on the center of my radar screen. Yes, and, and Robin too. And, and you and yeah. Robin put it there. Yeah. And so you said you occasionally have to do that. And I, when I read it, I thought, well, it's more than occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why it's a great balance. That's yes. why it's a great mix. Yeah. And you have to admit, I listen. Yes, you do. I do. I, I appreciate don't, that. I may grouse, but I listen. Yes, grouse. And I do it. Grouse is a good word. 99% of the time, I do. Yes, you do. I appreciate and, that. And, and the you, 1% of the time I don't. Moan, then you do listen. I do bitch and moan, but <laughs> the 1% of the time I don't, you have to admit there's usually a clinical reason that offsets that one time that yes. we don't, shouldn't do that. It's not that it, your instinct was wrong. It's just that that particular story, there's something clinically that says we need a different example. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good mix, though. Yes, very good mix. Good mix. Is there anything we haven't done that you think we should do or you think we will do over the next two or three years that we haven't really dug into yet? Or is this something that we have to wait and see what evolves with technology and hmm. things that are coming up with kids, like things you're hearing from Jackson Elizabeth or whatever? Well, you definitely need to get a TikTok, right? He needs a TikTok. Do you have a TikTok? Wait, what do you? Oh, my God. He has a TikTok. You're kidding me? When did this happen? 
Oh my God. <gasps> He's got a TikTok. I have TikTok. Are you I don't know what to do with po- it. <laughs> but I've downloaded the app. Well, you got to post videos now. Well, everyone's wanting them. Sammy Joe was telling me I got an email from her about this just this week. See? And Jordan had me download that. But I got this from Sammy Joe. She said, we'd love to sit down and talk to you about the possibility of launching a Dr. Phil TikTok See? and our proposed strategy. She says, currently like a really hot platform. And she yep. said, there's already a demand for your presence on the platform. Hashtag Dr. Phil has over 100 million views. And Dr. Phil related searches have over 200 million views. So See? apparently, you got to do People it. are looking for you. They're looking, looking for, for you on TikTok. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, so I'm going to talk to her today. Okay. So, okay. Okay. See, I'm taking that, your that's, advice. That's good. So, see, you're, okay. on, you're on top of everything. All right. We have to do more parenting stuff too. We've kind of gotten away from that. Yeah, I think you're right because these kids are getting bombarded with more and more stuff. And yeah. I always go back to my core values when I say. You're not going to be the only voice in your child's ear, so you better make damn sure you're the best voice in your child's yes. ear. And there's more and more competition for who they're listening for to. Sure. For all of these influences. For so sure. So we need to make sure that we're dealing yes. with that. Remember the show we did the other week about with the uh, the ring cameras and talking to the little kids? Oh, my God. That was creepy. The kid in the crib? Yes, the kid in the, the crib and the little the th- girl with the guy who was pretending to be Santa Claus? Yeah, it was over the uh, thermostat, one, one the of the thermostat. two. was the thermostat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's we, really creepy. Yeah, we've got to do more parenting Yeah, we have stuff. to do more about that. Okay. Well, last question. Yes. If you knew 19 years ago what you know now, would you have taken this job? Oh, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Probably would have asked for some more money. Just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Hit the edit button on that part. We'll take that out. Well, I have to say, I'm really glad you did. I really don't know that we would be here if you hadn't. Oh. 19 years later. You got that down on tape? Yeah, All you right. can cut that out, too. <laughs> All right. Thank I'll let you, you go back to the edit bay and do All what you right. were doing. But I wanted people to really hear from you and get to know you and see what's the um, behind-the-scenes force at Dr. Oh. Phil. You and Robin have been yes. absolutely critical. I couldn't have done it without her. To this <laughs> experiment. And she yeah. loves you. I mean, Love her right back. I, I stand no chance when you two are together. Nope. That's for sure. No chance. All right, Carla, thanks. Thank you. 